that's just a minor thing, but it's what he did in our hearts in that time. So I'll leave it at that. I could talk for ages about what happened, but we're very happy to be home and grateful to be back in this family of believers. Thank you. very much Dave it's, um, it's amazing I've heard a little bit more about that story and it's, it's, it's really really good catch up with Dave later if you want to hear a little bit more about that <sighs> asking Pastor John what he wanted to preach on he said uh, any passage you like but we're being, what I really want you to do is preach on, the, on a passage with regard to the resurrection and I went okay um, and I asked Kathy, so that's what uh, Pastor Will preached on last week was the resurrection. She said yes. And I thought, well, okay. Hopefully what I have to bring today might just add something to that. Maybe a little bit different perspective. I'm sure it will. Um, and maybe even today you might say, well, why do we have to listen to another uh, sermon on the, the resurrection? And that's probably a fair enough question, but I have another one in, in response. You know, that was Jesus' favorite thing, wasn't it? Ask him a question, he'll give you one. And so the question I might have is, do you truly believe the resurrection? Do we live as though we believe the resurrection? Um, and that's what I really want to talk about today. Live like you believe it. Now, I don't know if you've heard or not, I'm sure you have, probably along the way, that there, and it, it really actually amazes me that there are such a great number of Christian churches that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And these are mainline churches, ordinary, everyday churches who actually don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I find that it's absolutely astounding. There was a poll that was taken by the BBC um, some time ago, not so long ago actually, but it was done on Palm Sunday. Um, Great time to be making a poll about the resurrection of Jesus, I guess. And this is some of the results that came out. Some of the results that came out. Uh, fewer than one in three Christians in Britain believe word for word the biblical story of Jesus rising from the dead. That's huge. Um, another 41% believing some sections should not be taken literally. But this poll found that 23% of those calling themselves Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ at all. Not spiritually or physically. It's a bit mortifying really, isn't it? Interesting thing though is when you have a look at this, uh, this graph up here. Even though it's really sad, if you have a look at that, that 60% of action, less than 60% of active Christians really do believe, word for word, the story of Jesus' resurrection. But what I do find is some encouragement in that. What I find encouraging about that is that people who serve, people who come to church regularly, people who are reading their Bibles, people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, those active Christians are more willing to believe that the Bible is true, that it says what it means and means what it says. And this is not a new debate. And in fact, when Jesus walked the earth, we had these guys called Pharisees, as you know, and the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. But 
the other group, the Sadducees, those civil leaders of the day, those who ran the courts and whatever, they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And throughout history, this has been a pretty hot topic. At times it seems to boil up at times and then and simmer down at times. But it's not a new thing. Even in modern times, and when I say modern times, I'm talking about, you know, within the last 100 or 200 years. There was this guy called Reverend Harry Emerson Fosdick, a liberal Baptist pastor who rejected the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather, what he did do is he reviewed the resurrection as a, listen to this, persistence in Christ's personality. What does that mean? What does it mean? He delivered a famous sermon, or infamous, I might say, rebuking fundamentalists. Well, I might call myself a fundamentalist, but these days fundamentalism has a bit of a bad name. We probably tend to call ourselves conservative today. So he rebuked conservatives for their failure to tolerate difference in doctrinal matters such as the infallibility of the word of God, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, among other things. And I'm going like, well, there's not a whole lot left, is there? If you don't believe those things, if you have a difference of, of doctrine on those things, there's really not a whole lot left for you to choose from. Well, this morning I'm not here to actually debate whether Jesus was bodily resurrected or not. What I'm going to do is assume, and I'm fairly comfortable with this assumption, that most of us here simply believe it to be true. So I've chosen a passage this morning that I want to work from, and it is John chapter 10. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I just want to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, that written word, Father, that Holy Spirit-inspired word that was given to your saints that would transcend the generations. We get to hold that word in our hands, read it with our eyes, consume it into our hearts. And as we read your word today, as we listen to this message, I pray, Lord God, that 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 word that is written on the page comes to life for us and transforms us. May you bless us today by the reading of your word. In Jesus we pray it. Amen. Okay. So... We'll be going from John chapter 10, verse 14. So if you want to open up your Bibles to that now. Uh, Not going forward there. Can you move that along for me, Merv? All right, slides don't really matter anyway. So John chapter 10, verse starting at verse 14. Okay. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and they shall be one flock and one shepherd The reason my father loves me is that I lay my life down. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. 
this command I receive from my father. As these, at these words, the Jews again divided, were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They, then came the feast of the dedication and, at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered round him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe me. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. And another translation says, The miracles I do in my Father's name prove it to be true. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones and stone, uh, to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And that will do for us this morning. Now, we've been sitting for a while. I'd like you to actually stand up and go and say hello to people around you. That would be really nice. And we'll come back in just a moment. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. This is what I love about Christian people. Once you get them talking, it's hard to get them stopped. All right, if we could just take a seat, that would be great.
So again, I'm asking the question, do we live like we believe it? I think, I think sometimes we don't. And perhaps the reason that we don't sometimes live like we believe the resurrection is true is because sometimes I'm not actually sure if we remember all the time what the resurrection has done for us. So before we uh, get to good news today, because resurrection is absolutely good news, before we get to that good news today, we're going to have a bit of a look at some bad news. Actually, a fairly, fairly extensive look at some bad news. I'm going to borrow some of uh, my message from Lakeside, both on Good Friday and on Easter, so Resurrection Sunday. Uh, and I'll begin with uh, Friday's message. And it says that death is an intruder. Death is an intruder. I pointed that out because Adam's, with Adam's sin, it wasn't just that Adam's that death of the body, the physical death, came into existence then. All sorts of other things came into death came into all sorts of other things as well death came into our integrity death came into our purity you know god made us pure we weren't ashamed of each other's bodies they stood together naked and that's just the way it was but now because of the death of impurity we have all sorts of horrifying sexual problems within our world rampant pornography um, sex trade and all sorts of things. Death to impurity. Uh, death to purity. Guilt and shame came into the world. Uh, death to that sinless confidence that man had to come into the presence of God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But now that relationship was damaged. But most importantly, I think death to that shalom relationship. That perfect right relationship. That intimacy that God had with his people. Death was an intruder. And of course, along with that death that came into the world, so too did the promise of God's judgment. If we have a look in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, just as each person is destined to die once after that to face judgment. And that's all of Adam's children. That's you and me. That's every human being who has ever walked this earth the thing that we were to face was death and judgment. Romans, Romans chapter 2 verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And in Revelation chapter, seven, uh, chapter 14, rather, verses 10 to 11, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Next slide. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. This is ours. This is pretty bad news, I think. It's pretty awful news. But this is what the whole world deserves because of sin. I don't like it. I don't think any of us like this. But I have a question. What is this all about? Well, I think this is a pretty huge theological question. And we could spend months and even years really working through this. But what I want to do is... Thank you, Chris. What I want to do is just sum it up if I can. I probably won't do it a lot of justice, but I just want to sum it up for us this morning. As God is the God of love, He is also 
the God of justice. I think about it from a human point of view. If somebody does something against us, we want justice. We want those people to receive for what they have done to us their just desserts. We want them to pay the price for for their wrongdoing against us. We want justice. And when we don't receive justice, what do we do? We cry out to God and say, God, it's unfair. Except when God's judgment is leveled against us and then we don't like it. You see, the thing is that God is perfect. His justice is perfect. He has to administer due punishment for sins. Otherwise, he is not a just God. And if he's not a just just God, then he's not the God of love that he claims to be. If we have a look in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. John John 5.22 tells us who that man is. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So it is Jesus who will judge us. So again, Acts 17.31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed... And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, there's probably some good news. And that is that we don't get judgment because he's in the grave dead. But there's some bad news that goes along with that. If Jesus is in the grave, we don't get life. So what do you choose? Here's the thing. God is not caught off guard by this sin, this fall that happened, the sin that came into the world. He knew in his sovereignty that sin would be destructive, that it would uh, bring guilt and shame and it would plague humanity. But he set in place a plan, a remedy for this sin problem. He was not caught off guard. And that's good news. God would come near. The thing is, good news only looks its glorious best when we see it out of a position of the darkness of bad news. And we know that, don't we? I mean, for us to really appreciate a sunshiny day, we need rainy days. For us to, to live the fullness of the joy and hope that is in the promise of the resurrection, I think we need to taste, even experience, this sense of what it would be like for us so far as judgment and the wrath of God. And this is the good news. Just for you, Dave. For John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world. Isn't that amazing? For God so loved the world. He's not there. He's not there first and foremost for condemnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what he wants for us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God came near. God came near. Don't want you to close your eyes. You didn't see that yet. So how did God go about this? Uh, God went about it 
through his son. And I think when I first read this story, all those years back when I came to faith, to me it looked like a bad news story. Why should this happen to God's son? Well, though without sin, he was falsely accused. Illegally tried, brutally tortured and beaten and tormented, carrying his very own instrument of death up the hill to Calvary. And on the sixth hour, we hear the thud of nails being driven through his hands as he's crucified on that cross. And from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness comes over the whole earth. And it's at that time, right at that time, the floodgates of heaven were opened and the torrent of the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. And to me, that sounds, that's horrifying that God would have to bear such a thing. But he did it for sins. My sins, your sins, for the sins of the world. And another question might be, why did the one who made the very heavens and the earth have to die? The one man's sacrifice for the many. His death, a substitute for ours. His life, a ransom for ours. A hefty price paid. Life for life. Blood for blood. Our forgiveness. Our forgiveness for sins because of his death. And I think that's pretty good news. But you know what? There's a whole lot of people actually don't see that as good news. And for those people who don't see that that is good news, this is what Matthew tells us. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But for those who have believed this good news, this is what we will hear. In Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's pretty good news. And at the ninth hour, when the righteous judgment of God was at last satisfied, Jesus cried out one last time, it is finished. Paid in full. All of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sins paid for, finalized. No debt against you. Then he breathed his last. Holy blood poured out. The final perfect sacrifice for sins offered on a cross of wood and he did it for you and he did it for me and he did it for love death had now entered into the heavenly realm i don't know if you've thought about this before but death has now entered into the heavenly realm but amazingly even more so than that it has intruded into the trinitarian family of god in the person of the son 
And as we stand with all of those in heaven, we stand dumbfounded at what has been done for us, what has taken place. You know what happens sometimes when we talk about the wrath of God, we start to think about God as this ogre God, as this God who was just waiting there to pour out his anger on all you dirty sinners. But that's not the God that we know, is it? He is the God of love. And when we look at Jesus, when he's standing outside of Lazarus's tomb, he's standing there and he's looking at all these people who are mourning, all of them broken hearted at the loss that death brings into the world. And then when he stands outside of Jerusalem, looking across the city, and he just knows all of those people in that city and in the land that have gone astray, they've all been led astray, some of them willfully. And what does he do in both those occasions? He wept. And when we look at that word wept, we go, oh, Jesus had a little tear. But that's not what it actually is saying. He overflowed with intense emotion for the brokenness that's in the world. You know, verse 30 tells us, verse 30 in John chapter 10 tells us that I and the Father are one. What breaks Jesus' heart breaks the Father's heart also. Our God is not a God who desires to pour out wrath, but he is a just God and he must. I finished on Good Friday uh, out there at Lakeside with Jesus left on the cross. But before that day was out, what happened is that the Lord's lifeless body was taken down from the cross and it was laid, it was wrapped up in his burial clothes and it was laid in a borrowed tomb. The heavy stone was then rolled across the face of the grave and it was sealed and it was guarded by Roman soldiers, as we know. Yet what we do know is that the scripture tells us that early in the morning, some women went to the grave. See, death could not hold this Christ. And they, what they found was that the stone had been rolled away. And in John, we read that Mary ran back to Peter and John and, and they both took off to see whether this was true. And Peter, though he arrived second, he steps into the tomb first. And then John steps into that tomb second. And what it tells us, it says that John went in and saw the clothes that were lying there. Remember that word, the clothes that were lying there and he believed. What about those clothes made John believe and what was it that John believed? Well, Mark chapter 9 verse 30 to 32 tells, tells us, the son of man, this is Jesus saying, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. Now, if you have a look in your King James Version, that word that's lying or lie in the King James means they were there as they had been laid. You see, these grave clothes were now empty. There was no flesh in them. There was no bones in them. Jesus had lifted up out of those clothes and where they were laid, they had rested, undisturbed. And then... John remembered what Jesus had said. He believed now that Jesus was raised to life. He is risen. And we say, 
He is risen indeed. And again, I'm not here to debate the resurrection. I, I just believe it. I, have no, I don't even have to worry about it. It is simply true as far as I'm concerned. But what I'm here to do is just to talk about the significance of the resurrection to us who are Christians, to people who have believed the good news about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God who lived a righteous life, that he is the only one who is able to be the perfect sacrifice for sins. He is our substitute. He is the one who died in our place, who was buried and was raised to life and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as we heard this morning from Keith, he is coming again. And I want us to see what the Apostle Paul says about this cosmic significance of the resurrection. And we're going to have a look in uh, in 1 Corinthians, yes, 15.3, that's it. 1 Corinthians 15.3. And starting at verse 12. But it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. You see, everything hinges on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, everything that has transpired in the word of God is subjective. It's open to criticism. It's all a lie. It's a farce. Jesus says, I will rise again. In verse 17, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's not a very good thing for us to hear, is it? You are still in your sins again. If Jesus died on the cross and was buried but remains in the tomb, then we, our sins are not forgiven. He is not the God who we profess to have faith in. If only for this life you have hope in Christ, we are more to be pitied than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, through his resurrection, all will be made alive. Good news. Good news. So I want us just to slip back now to our passage, John chapter 10, and starting at verse 14. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I just want to paint a little bit of a picture here. What happens in the countryside when a, in, in Jesus' day when a shepherd was out in the field pasturing his sheep at night where the ravenous wolves would prowl and just look to fill their bellies, what would happen is that these shepherds would bring their sheep into a, a natural sort of corral, uh, whether it be rocks or whether it be a thicket that was really thick that nothing could get through and what would happen there is that those sheep would go inside that corral and right there in the opening where those sheep would go through the shepherd himself would lie across 
that opening. That anything that would try to snatch those sheep out of the shepherd's hand would have to go through that shepherd. I find that's pretty amazing. Everything that wants to come against us as Christian people has to go through Jesus. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Jesus says, I lay my life down for my sheep. We see that he has done that, but it hasn't finished. He's always in the place interceding for us. He is our strong tower, our keeper. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He is still busy. There are people out in the world that Jesus is bringing into his fold, those that he wants to become part of his sheepfold. That's us. We know his voice. We have somebody to follow. The reasons the Father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own authority and I have authority to take it up again. This is our Savior. This is our God. And he did. He did take it up again. We know it to be true. He has authority. He's proved himself faithful in his resurrection. And he can prove himself and has proved himself faithful in all of those miracles that he did and all the promises that he makes for us before he comes again. He is the faithful one. It says, these miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. We know him, don't we? We know him when we step off that path. We hear that voice in our minds just goading us to get back onto the path. We know the voice of our shepherd. We know that the promises that he made, he will keep because of his faithfulness in the resurrection. My father who has given me who who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, that is probably the greatest promise that I have from my God. Is that you know, I can I'm not a perfect man. We are not perfect people. Sometimes we stumble, sometimes we even willfully sin, but the scripture says no one can snatch you or me, out of his hand. Not the Savior's hand, not the Father's hand. What a promise. Proved to be true because of the resurrection. I and the Father are one. What a great, amazing God we have. I think it's time, and many of us do, but I think it's time that we all started to live like we believe it. Live like we believe it. We are people of hope. We are people of joy because of Jesus' resurrection. And it's not a wistful hope. Oh, well, maybe I might get to heaven one day. It's a certain hope. We can live daily knowing who we are in Christ because of the proof of who he says he was in his resurrection. And we can overflow with joy. Even in a world of hopelessness and imminent death, joy and hope are ours. And the amazing thing is that all those things that got broken way back when death entered, entered into the world 
are being made new. Hope and joy is a welcome intruder into our lives now. Integrity is being remade new. Headship, submission, responsibility, all those things that God gave us are being made new. Renewal of purity. Re-establishment of sinless confidence of man to come before his God. The spiritual union that was broken, that shalom relationship, now restored because the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is may we live like we believe it let's just pray Heavenly Father just want to thank you God sometimes thank you just doesn't seem enough But when we look at the power that was displayed in that resurrection action. Lord, we have confidence. Unwavering confidence in who you are. And what you can do and will do. And we do look forward with fervent hearts to your coming again. In Jesus' name, amen.